blessing and a privilege for me to get to share on the Christmas story. Now, like Franco said, <laughs> that I've been working on this for years and I am standing on the shoulder of giants. It's not like I got out a manuscript and then discovered all this stuff. This has been building for years and years and many, many great people have spoken into it through the years. Uh, many wonderful people that I call them my dead friends. So you can see the books behind me. Uh, you know, I read a lot of commentaries and what great men and women have written about the Bible and I learn from them and also the customs books, and we learn from them. So we're all standing on the shoulders of others, and that's true of me. And it's true that Franco is correct that uh, I've recently put uh, the various culminations of various articles and things into a booklet, um, and it's available. It's free. It's online. I'm not sure what the link is, but I guess Franco said he had it, or if not, uh, Janet or Renee or someone at Spirit and Truth has the link. And you can read the booklet if you print it out. If, if I understand correctly, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 pages to print it out. But not to worry, it's got a lot of white space. You know, there's a space between every paragraph and that kind of thing. So it's actually quite easy to read and easy to digest. So I'm blessed to get it out. And if you know anyone that would benefit from having a better understanding of what we call the Christmas story, then be, feel free to pass it on to as many people as you think would be blessed. Um, I'll give you part of the reason for turning this into a, a book like this is that I had done an extensive article on it last year and kind of test marketed it with a lot of, of people and some of the churches and fellowships that my wife and I were connected with. Um, and it didn't go over nearly as well as I thought. I was amazed at um, people's response where the tradition is so deep <clears throat> that even when you're looking at the truth of something, you don't change your tradition. So part of the impetus for writing a booklet was it allowed me to do more footnote notes, bring more scholarly opinion to the fore where people saw that it just wasn't us that are thinking this way, but actually a lot of people have. So that's part of the, the reason for the booklet. Um, that being said, let's get into the Christmas story itself. Now, we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 17, which for many of you may be <laughs> kind of an interesting place to start the Christmas story. But while we're getting there, and by the way, I'm going to be reading out of the Revised English Version of the Bible. And for those, those of you that are and truth, and you know very well what that is. But um, in the year 2000, <clears throat> excuse me, in the year 2000, I started a translation of the Bible. Uh, this, the impetus for this was teen camp, um, because I would talk to the teenagers and I would say, "This is the Bible. You've got to read it and believe it." But then, if you guys know the way we handle the word accurately, we say, "Well." This word doesn't really mean that, and this word really isn't mean that, and this word is mistranslated. And somebody came to me and basically confronted me and said, look, you're telling them to read and believe the Bible, and then you're telling them all the, the words that are wrong in it. And it was like, eh, and then it was, you, you ought to do your own translation. And so we put that off for a while, but then the truth of it uh, came to came to roost. And so we started a translation in the year 2000. And I've worked with some absolutely wonderful translators. And much of what I teach you tonight uh, will be in the commentary of the REV. 
And if you need uh, to know more about that, then you can contact me or some, I'm sure there's a lot of people on the screen who use it, or you can contact our home office and somebody will walk you through. But it's revisedenglishversion.com if you want to go there and be able to read along with us now. First of all, let me say there's a whole bunch of lessons that we can learn from the biblical story. Huge, huge things that really, honestly, until I was preparing for this teaching, I never really thought about sitting down and making a list of of lessons, overarching lessons that we learn from the truth of the Christmas story. Um, so I just I'll mention two right off the bat. One is, and we're going to be there in Deuteronomy 17, one is that Christ, despite the fact that he was destined to be literally king of the universe, second in command to God Almighty, was born in humble circumstances. He was born like an ordinary person would have been expected to have been born, not like a king that needs all these accolades and has hundreds and thousands of followers, even though he has that now and will certainly have that in the future. But the way he was born was very humble and represented his heart, not only throughout his life, but even still today. He's a very humble person. And Romans 8 says that when we're groaning and creation is groaning, the Spirit himself, that's Jesus Christ, the Spirit himself groans with us. He's a very humble, personable person. And that's one of the lessons of the birth of Christ. Another is that if you read a number of books in the Bible, particularly Ezekiel, Ezekiel is the most exactly dated book in the Bible. It is. It would have been very, very possible for God to tell us the exact day, month, year, all the surroundings that Jesus Christ was born, and he didn't. And there are scholars on both sides. There are people that believe in a spring birth, and I believe there is very good evidence for a spring birth. There are people that believe in a fall birth. I believe there's some evidence for a fall birth. I don't believe there's any uh, credible real evidence for a winter birth. But in any case, spring birth, fall birth, we don't know when Christ was born. We can We can surmise, but the Bible doesn't tell us like it talks in Ezekiel about dates. And what that tells me is there's a great lesson here, which it's more important that Christ was born than when he was born. And when we're talking about the Christmas story, we need to focus on the fact that Christ was born. So in Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting in verse 14, what do we have? We have laws concerning Israel's king and kings. And I'm not going to read all these verses here, 14 to 20. But what you see in the upshot of this is expressed in verse 19 and 20, that he's to write his own copy of the law in verse 18. It's to be with him. He's to read from it all the days of his life. He's to keep the words of the law, verse 20, that his heart not be lifted up above his brothers. And the whole, when God put a king in place, it was genuinely to serve. I mean, sometimes we talk in the United States about, you know, people like the president, vice president, senators and all that, and that they're supposed to pe- serve the people. But sometimes that's hollow 
because sometimes they really serve themselves much more than the people. God's true kings are kings of service. And Jesus Christ was not to be lifted up above his brothers, and he wasn't lifted up above his brothers in his birth. That being said, let's go to Luke chapter 1. Now, in a number of places in the commentary in the REV, I have put the chronology, if you will, of the birth of Christ, if you wanted to read it in chronological order, chronological order in the scripture. So, for example, uh, if you've got kids and you want to read them the Christmas story, say in the week before Christmas, you're going to sit them down for, say, 15 or 20 minutes and read through and read them the Christmas story. Then the first thing you're going to read is Luke 1, 5 to 80, then Matthew 1, 18 to 25, then Luke 2, 1 to 38, then Matthew 2, 1 to 22, and then Matthew 2:23 and Luke 2:39 are summary verses. I know I went through that really fast, um, but it's like I say, it's in a whole bunch of places. And one of them, for example, is the commentary on Luke chapter one, verse five, which is where we start the, the story of the birth of Christ. And it says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zechariah of the priestly division of Abijah. And he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Basically, the story here, and I I should say this too, because there is so much material here, I can't take the time to bring forth every lesson. I could easily teach for over an hour and have on just Zachariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John. There's no point in doing that. You guys get the general idea, and I'm trying to give kind of an overview. And what I want to especially do in this teaching is bring out points that you may not have heard before, that may be new to you, may be a little different. So we know that here's Zechariah, and an angel shows up to him when he's inside the holy place, the most outer, the outermost room of the temple, and he's going to burn incense there. And an angel shows up and tells him that he's going to uh, get his wife Elizabeth pregnant and they're going to have a son. And since they're both very old, this is a, a miracle baby. So let's go to uh, Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 15. And the angel here is commenting about the child. And he says, for he will be, this, this becomes important, by the way, because it sets messianic expectation. I don't know about you, but I keep thinking the Lord, I mean, I look around at the world events. I think the Lord's going to come back any day. <laughs> you, I don't know if you feel the same way. But at the time of Christ, there was tremendous messianic expectation. Part of that was because of Daniel and the chronology of when the Christ would come in the book of Daniel, part of that is what we're seeing here in Luke chapter 1. Because there's here's a miracle birth, and in verse 15, the angel says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. By the way, that's a very, very powerful thing to aspire to, to be great in the eyes of the Lord. John the Baptist was never great in the eyes of people. He was respected as a prophet, but in the eyes of people, he was never really considered great. And of course, he died as a criminal, well, not as a criminal. He was executed on a whim uh, when he was being held prisoner in the palace at Machiris. And, and 
Herod Antipas executed him. But anyway, the, the, the angel says here he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. Then he's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to be filled with the spirit, even from his mother's womb. Verse 16, the angel goes on. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, and he will go before him and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And he goes on to disobedient to the good sense of the righteous. And when the angel said that to Zechariah the priest, I bet you Zechariah's hair stood on end. Couple things in this message. Number one, that he will go before him in the spirit. He'll go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Zechariah would have immediately understood that the angel was talking about the forerunner to the Messiah. So let's go to Malachi chapter 4. And in Malachi chapter 4, we're going to be back here again, by the way. Um, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of Yahweh comes, which they associated with the coming of the Messiah. So here, this this baby of Zechariah's is going to have the spirit and power of Elijah. God says, I'll send you Elijah. And then he says, verse 6, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And that's exactly what was quoted to the, uh, the angel quoted to Zechariah. So Zechariah then really understood that his baby was going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. And they were very astute readers. I'd like to go to Malachi chapter 3 because the John the Baptist was the messenger. Remember, he's going before the face of the Lord because it was like 2,000 years before. No, the every indication in Scripture was that once the forerunner was there, the Messiah would be right behind him. Verse 1 of Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I'm sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So here's this the messenger who the angel is identifying as John the Baptist. He's going to prepare the way before the Lord, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. See, there's not going to be this huge amount of time between the forerunner and the Messiah. The Messiah is going to prepare the way. I mean, the, the forerunner is going to prepare the way, and then the Messiah is going to suddenly come. And so when the angel told this to Zechariah, then Zechariah knew exactly what was going on. His child was going to be the forerunner to the Messiah, which meant what? The Messiah is right on his heels, and he would have been aware of that. So let's, um, going down, let's go back to Luke chapter 1. Um, and so Zechariah then uh, says to the angel, how can I know this? And you know the story. Zechariah is smitten dumb and can't talk, and he won't talk again until John the Baptist's day of circumcision comes, which was his eighth day of life. So now we go to Luke chapter 1, and we're dealing with Mary, Mary and the angel. So it starts out in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the sixth month of what? The verse before, verse 25, is talking about Elizabeth and her baby. 
And she says, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among people. And in that culture, it was a disgrace for a woman not to have a child. So Elizabeth is talking about her child, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Couple things in this verse. The six months tells us that, that John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus because Mary is going to conceive here in Elizabeth's six months. Then it says he was sent uh, from God. Then it says, notice it doesn't say to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem, you know, to Capernaum. You know, it says to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Why, why the big explanation? Nazareth was so small and so unknown, it doesn't occur in any writing outside the New Testament. It's not in the Talmud. It's not in the Mishnah. It's, it's just here it is. So a lot of people didn't know it. They, and so it describes he was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And that's why that's in there. Verse 27 to a virgin who was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. In modern history, in the days we live in today, the Jews reckon their genealogy through the mother. And the reason for that is a lot of times, you know, everybody knows who the mother is, but who the father is, that's not always necessarily known. In the biblical world, the genealogy was traced through the father. So it was important to point out that Joseph was of the line of David. However, Mary had to be of the line of David as well. How do we know? Because if Mary was not of the house of David, then Jesus Christ would not be a lineal descendant of David because God impregnated Mary and God was not of the lineage of David. So if Mary wasn't of the lineage of David, and God wasn't of the lineage of David, then Jesus wouldn't have been of the lineage of David. And in Romans chapter 1, it says that Jesus, who was of the line of David according to the flesh, which means that that's through Mary. So what this tells us then is that both Mary and Joseph were of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Verse 28, and we've got to get this right. Uh, it says, and going into where she was, and that becomes very important because the angel here is going to have a very private conversation with Mary. Now, he's not going to be able to do that out on the street where everybody can see. So God's pretty good with where people are and when they are. So at some point when Mary was alone in the house, poof, <laughs> this angel shows up and he goes in to where she was. What's intriguing is that that would startle any woman. You're in a house by yourself and a man just comes walking in that you don't know. That would startle just about any woman. But he goes in and he says, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she, then she was greatly perplexed at the saying and began to deliberate what kind of greeting this might be. And, of course, that's going on. But I bet uh, it... it you guys know what it is when something startles you and you're you're startled 
you're on the verge of being scared or maybe you're scared and your mind's running a mile a minute about who is this guy and what did he say and what did he mean by that and wasn't that the same thing that he said to, to Gideon the Lord is with you and why would he say that um Judges chapter 6 why would he say that and and so she's greatly perplexed she's deliberating in her mind very quickly what's going on and the angel said to her and he dealt with the situation right there he said do not be afraid, Mary. And of course, that that should have and would have calmed her down. Don't be afraid, because obviously, a lone woman, young woman, by the way, probably 14, 15 years old. And all of a sudden, this, this you know, strange guy comes walking into the house where she is. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. And look, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son and will call his name Jesus uh, Yehoshua in Hebrew, same name as Joshua. The the longer name of Joshua and Jesus is Yehoshua. Um, you know, Yahweh saves. And so that was through Joshua, through Jesus. And then he's going to say, okay, you're going to give birth. You're going to call him, his name Jesus. And now he's going to introduce Mary to the fact that her child is going to be the Messiah. Now, you have to remember that in Hebrew, Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew means anointed one, and there were lots of them. King Saul, remember when David said, you know, I, I won't lay my hand to the anointed one. That's the word Messiah. If you, if you take the Old Testament scriptures and run the Hebrew word, use the Hebrew concordance and look at the Hebrew word Messiah, there's a lot of Messiahs in the Old Testament. So God can't just say, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. That could, you know, just be somebody who's going to be a, a kind of a king figure or something like that. So he's got to, the angel's got to say something that cumulatively in what he says is going to register that this is the promised Messiah. And so he says, you'll give birth to a son. You'll call his name Yehoshua. Yahweh saves. He, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. We're going to visit that again in a second. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And it was those three things that sealed the deal. The throne of David had been vacated since the Babylonian captivity. The last king of Judah sitting on the throne of David well, not even sitting, well, sitting on the throne of David de facto because he was captive in Babylon was a guy named Jehoiachin. He was the last living king who was a lineal descendant of David. And that was, oh, 570-ish BC. So for half a century, the throne of David had had nobody on it. Furthermore, there was no particular reason to believe, since the Romans were in control, that there was going to be somebody sitting on the throne of David anytime soon. But everybody knew there was one. That was promised in 2 Samuel 7 when Nathan talked to David. And he said, the Lord will establish the throne of your kingdom. And it was Bill Schlegel who pointed out to me the importance of the word throne, that it's the kingdom, it's the throne of David that Jesus sits on. It is a lineal descendancy from David to Christ. 
And Christ will sit on the throne of David. And the Messiah was foretold to sit on the throne of David so much so that in Ezekiel, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is actually called David by antonymasia, the replacement of the name, because it was the throne. And so when the angel said, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end, which was both promises to David and to Solomon. All of a sudden, Mary's like, I get it. Wow, I'm going to give birth to the Messiah. One problem, she's not having sex with a guy. So she's like, okay, uh, Angel, this sounds really good. Um, Verse 34, but Mary said, how will this be, seeing I'm not knowing a man sexually? I'm not actively having sex. How is this going to happen? Now, people would say, "Um, but wasn't it a virgin birth? Yes. Well, why didn't Mary know it was a virgin birth? Why didn't Mary point at her son and go, wow, I must be the virgin? Because the Old Testament never clearly prophesied a virgin birth. In the um, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, well, let's just go there in the, in the REV. We'll just hop over to Isaiah 7, and it's verse 14. And you'll notice that the Hebrew text of the REV is translated considerably differently than a lot of the Bibles that you will read. Verse 14, uh, well, basically what happens is the prophet in verse 11 says, ask a sign of Yahweh your God. And then he has says, I'm not going to ask. And then in verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you all a sign. Give you, it's in the plural. So in the REV, we translate it to give you all. In other words, this sign is going to be for everybody that was right there. Behold, the young woman is pregnant and about to bear a son. And you, young woman, he's speaking to the young woman who was present. We'll call his name Emmanuel. It's the mother of this child who calls him Emmanuel. He will eat butter and honey when he knows to refuse the evil and choose the good. But before the child knows to refuse the evil and choose good, which, you know, might be five, six years old, something like that. The land of the two kings you abhor, which is Syria, in this case, Syria and Israel, will be forsaken. So this prophecy is one of the prophecies in the Bible that has a double fulfillment. It is fulfilled here in Isaiah's time by a woman who's already pregnant. And it is fulfilled later as the the word, the Hebrew word for young woman, which is Alma, um, which can mean young woman. We learn from the New Testament that this is also fulfilled as the young woman, the Virgin Mary, gets pregnant. So my point is that why wasn't Mary expecting a virgin birth? Why wasn't Joseph expecting a virgin birth? Why was the reputation that Jesus was born of sexual immorality that followed him his whole life? If you remember, when Jesus Christ was confronting the Pharisees, they said, we're not born from sexual immorality. So the fact that people thought that Jesus Christ was the product of sexual immorality stayed with him through his whole life because the Old Testament didn't foretell a virgin birth. So nobody believed in a virgin birth unless you believed in God and actually got into what was going on. So that becomes then very important for letting us know why 
uh, why is Matthew, uh, let me see, whoops, I need to be Luke. There we go. Ta-da, I'll get there. Um, oh, there we go. Okay, so we're back in Luke chapter 1. So it says, um, okay, so the angel, sorry about this, let me find my place. Yeah, so verse uh, 34, how will this be? So I, see, I'm not knowing a man sexually. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, there's a lot of a lot in that verse that is is kind of hidden, because in Psalm two, the Messiah is called the Son of God, and if you look at the word "son" through the Old Testament, and you can do this um, in my commentary, the REV commentary. I'm not going to take the time to run through a dozen verses in which use the word son in different ways. But Israel was called God's son. Eli called Samuel my son, even though Samuel wasn't even close to being his son. Um, there, the word son could mean a disciple. It could mean someone you had a specially close relationship. It could have um, somebody that was beloved to you, no matter what their stand was. There were various reasons for calling somebody a son. But now the angel's going to tell Mary there's going to be another reason that Jesus is called the Son of God, not the common, ordinary reasons that we see all over the Old Testament, but another reason. So back to verse 35, it said, the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And she gets that. That means basically those are um, innuendos, if you will, for making you pregnant. And then it's, he says, for that reason, it's because God's going to be the Father. It's because of that. It's for that reason that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Not because of Psalm 2-7. Not because of the cultural way Son was used. But because God is going to be the actual Father. And this was brand new. I mean, I'm sure Mary was blown away. And by the way, we're, we read this in, you know, something like 13 verses, this conversation between Mary and the angel. But I guarantee you it took a long time. Mary was a very bold young woman. I mean, she had to be bold. She's looking at the angel. How will this be? You know, seeing I'm not, I don't know a man. So she was a very bold woman. And the implications of this, that she would be pregnant from God, are are huge. And so I'm sure there's more here, like there is in many conversations in the scripture. So anyway, uh, she, the angel answers her. Then he says, look, Elizabeth has conceived a son in her old age. Uh, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God and, and Mary in her youth. But wisdom and boldness said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. So this is a, a very powerful rendition of what what happened with Mary. And then she goes to see Elizabeth. 
Elizabeth, John the Baptist leaps in, in Elizabeth's womb when Mary enters. And then Mary has this song called the Magnificat that starts in verse 46. And then down to verse 57, we have the birth of John the Baptist. So, uh, I want to, I want to read this. Um, so, verse 57. Now, Elizabeth's time was fulfilled for her to give birth, and she bore a son. Now, the reason I want to point this out is because it's very typical birth language. When we get in, in the next chapter, in Luke chapter two, when we get to the birth of Jesus Christ, it's really simply written up in two verses. And, and people have extrapolated this huge fantasy about them, it being a cold winter night and about it being a silent night, which is was anything but a silent night. And it was in a stable and they were all alone, but then somehow or other kings found them in the stable, that kind of thing. So there's, there's all this fanciful tradition that's been built upon a simple statement like this, Elizabeth time was fulfilled for her to give birth and she bore a son. When the Bible talks about women giving birth, um, the, the sensitive details of the birth are never given. It just says, you know, hundreds of times actually in the scripture, so-and-so gave birth to a son or so-and-so bore so-and-so. It never gives you the details. Those things are not covered. Why? Because they're very common. We'll run into that when we get to Luke chapter 2, verse 7. So then, verse 59, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. This is John. And they were going to call him Zachariah after the name of his father. His mother answered and said, no, he will be called John. And they motioned to the father, and he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, saying, his name is John. And they were all amazed, verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue, and he spoke, praising God. And this is in itself obviously a miracle and extremely well-timed, because now what's going to happen is that Zechariah is going to give a prophecy. By the way, one of the things I should point out is why was Zechariah smitten mute? You know, it's obvious that the angel, when Zechariah said, you know, I'm an old man, how is this going to come to pass? That seemed a logical question. No less logical than Mary's, how can I give birth to the Messiah? I'm not having sex with a man. And yet the angel challenged Zechariah, you're going to be mute. What do we, what do we know from that? Well, one thing is that it didn't hurt Zechariah. It's not like God says, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you headaches until the, until your baby is born or something like that. What it actually did was it helped Zechariah. It got him out of the priestly hubbub. <clears throat> Remember that a priest was not able to serve if they were uh, deformed or hurt in some fashion. And so Zechariah would have been pulled away from a lot of the hubbub of the, temple, of the temple and his daily activities and would have been freed up considerably to go and minister to Elizabeth, who at her age, being pregnant, 
would have needed some extra care, some extra attention. There would have been a lot of planning. For example, they were both really old and they were both uh, apparently dead by the time John started his ministry. So there would be planning in there. You know, how do we plan for the boy? What do we do? We know he's going to have Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, that kind of thing. But I want to point that out about just how simple the Bible says that all she did was give birth because that's basically what's going to happen in the next chapter with Mary. So then he speaks and he speaks an amazing prophecy because John the Baptist has just been circumcised, which tells us that John the Baptist is now eight days old. The rabbi is there who's doing the circumcision. There's all of it, blah, 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 relatives and friends and everything else. And Zechariah then is filled with the spirit of God, his first words, and he prophesies in verse 68, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited us and brought about redemption for his people. So you'd think, well, he's going to talk about John the Baptist, (laughs) but he spends quite a few verses here talking about the Lord Jesus, because John the Baptist is the commissioned forerunner to the Lord. And he wants, and that's got to be pointed out. So he says, he's visited us and brought about redemption for his people. Now that doesn't come from the forerunner. That comes from the Messiah himself. Verse 69, and he has raised a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Zechariah was a priest. He would be a Levite. He would be of the tribe of Levi. But here we know that the horn of salvation, the Messiah, is from the tribe of Judah and from the line of David. Verse 70, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham, our father. And then, it goes on about how we can serve and that type of thing. Then verse 76, Zechariah stops prophesying about the Messiah, and he starts prophesying about the child that his wife had just given birth to eight days earlier. So in verse 76, he turns his focus and he says, and you, child, John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. And remember what we read in Malachi chapter 3. Let's go back and take another look at it. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. So here's, here's Zechariah in a prophecy that he gave immediately after being able to speak. And he says, And he says, you'll be called a prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare for the way for him, just like Malachi had said some 400 years earlier. Verse 77, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins, which is why John came baptizing and baptized a, a forgiveness for sins. And that was part of his ministry. Verse 78, because of the bowels of mercies of our God, by which the rising sun from on high will visit us. And um, 
to understand this, you have to understand the idiom that the sun rose from the east and brought light and deliverance. You know, the nights in Israel, very, very dark. Um, you know, obviously no street lights and, and that kind of thing and, and oil lamps and whatever, pretty ineffective for actual really uh, viable light. And so when the sun would break forth in the east, that rising sun would bring the light and deliverance. And so the rising sun uh, became an, an idiomatic figure for the coming of the Messiah, which would bring light to the people of Israel and deliverance. And again, I want to go back to Malachi. And I want to go to Malachi chapter 4, because here is another place where the Bible talks, uses that kind of language about the Messiah. We'll start right in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud and all who who work wickedness will be stubble. By the way, Gehenna is not a hell where people burn forever. All the figures of Gehenna and the lake of fire, people burn up, and we see that here. They will be stubble. The day that is coming will burn them up, says Yahweh of armies, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, once a person is thrown in Gehenna, they're totally gone. They're, you know, you're not burning forever and you're not suffering forever. You're burned up and that's the end of you. Verse two, but in contrast to those unbelievers, those people who work wickedness, verse two, but to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. See, in Luke, he's called the sunrise from on high. Here he's called the son of righteousness. By the way, and and many of you I know have heard me teach this, healing in his wings, the wings of the garment are the border of the garment and the tzitzit that are attached to the border of the garment. And here's a prophecy that said the Messiah would have healing in the border of his garment. And if you remember the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years, and she said, if I can just touch the border of his garment, I will be made whole. Why would she ever believe that? Because the messianic prophecy was that when the son of righteousness came, when the Messiah came, he would have healing in the border of his garment. And so she believed that prophecy, walked up and grabbed a hold of the border of Christ's garment, and God honored this prophecy and her trust in God, and and she then uh, was healed. So we're back to Luke chapter one, verse seventy-eight. The 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 sun, the rising sun from on high, the Messiah will visit us. Verse seventy-nine to shine on those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then of course it, it skips time and the child grew and was strong in spirit and that kind of thing. So now we've, we've got now the John the Baptist has been born. The angel has told Mary uh, that she's going to, that she's pregnant or going to be pregnant with the Messiah. And so now moving forward chronologically, we go to Matthew chapter one. So let's take a quick breather and we'll go to Matthew chapter one. Now, Matthew 1, you know, Mary's only half the equation. She's got a, she's got a, a betrothed, 
that uh, that has to figure out that she hasn't been messing around on him. So verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1 says, Now the birth of Christ happened this way. His mother Mary was engaged to Joseph. But before they came together in marriage, it was discovered that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not exactly right. <laughs> we have to read this as if we were living it. That because people didn't, the, the problem was that people did not discover that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. They discovered that she was pregnant. <laughs> the narrator is telling us that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. But we need to make that break because when, when it says it was discovered that she was pregnant, then we have to understand that's what the people discovered. And from the Holy Spirit is what the narrator, Matthew, adds to let us know how she got pregnant. So here's Mary and what's happened. It's now been discovered that she's pregnant. That I don't think that would be difficult in that culture. Um, the very astute and, and looked at each other and p- paid attention to your flesh color and lots of other things. So uh, I don't think that it was necessarily some kind of baby bump that gave Mary away. I think it was more than just her, her skin tone and, and that kind of thing that that gave Mary away that and she was it was discovered she was pregnant verse 19 now Joseph her husband now they're only betrothed why is Joseph here called her husband um a betrothal in that time in the ancient near east was so strong that it took a divorce to break it so even though they hadn't come together sexually yet, even though they hadn't been through a formal marriage ceremony yet, even though they're only what you and I would call in our culture engaged, in the biblical culture, that engagement was so strong that Joseph is called her husband. And that's important to understand. So verse 19, now Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and yet not wanting to disgrace her publicly. Now, why? Why would it say he was a righteous man and yet not wanting to disgrace her publicly? Because normally you would think that a righteous man would do the letter of the law. And yet this is a great mini lesson for us here because Joseph was a righteous man. But there are times when the absolute letter of the law can be pushed to immoral limits. And Joseph is a righteous man. But in this case, he didn't want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to divorce her secretly. And why would he do that? Because he was a a godly man, a man who loved. I'm sure he was invested in Mary and in their betrothal and was probably incredibly disappointed, shocked, everything else that somebody would be uh, when Mary was discovered pregnant. Um. Verse 20, so he thought about these things and he decided to divorce her. Verse 20, and I like this, but after he considered these things. So God waited until Joseph had sorted all this stuff out in his mind and made his decision so that when the angel came in, the angel could change Joseph's mind and it would be over and done. So verse 20, but after he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph. Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, 
because the child who has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And, and so then, right, and, and again, there may have been more in the dream, more discussion in the dream. This is the sum and substance of it. Verse 21, she will give birth to a son. You are to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Again, Yehoshua, Yahweh saves. He's going to save his people from their sins. But I'm sure, you know, that there was more to this conversation, just like there was more in the conversation with Mary. Verse 22, now all this took place with the result that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet was fulfilled, saying, behold, the virgin. Now we've moved forward. We've moved forward from about, Oh, 725 to 750 BC with Isaiah, where she's called a young woman and she's pregnant to now you're in, you're in Matthew and it's the virgin will be pregnant. It's a future tense verb in Greek and will give birth to a son, another future tense verb, and they will call his name Emmanuel. So this is Matthew's application of the Old Testament scripture speaking of how it applies to Jesus Christ. The virgin will be pregnant, will give birth to a son, they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated as God with, with us. Then Joseph, awaking from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Now, it's not like he walked in the dark over to Mary's house and grabbed her and brought her home. It's just he woke up and began to make plans, how am I going to do this? And then he was able to pull that off. Verse 25, but he did not know her sexually until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, and that was cultural. Jesus, Mary was pregnant with the Messiah, and if Joseph had started to have sexual intercourse with her before Jesus was born, try to get anyone to believe that that isn't Joseph's child. People just wouldn't have believed it. And so Joseph here, uh, and here you see his his tremendous, his godliness, his love for Mary, his love for God, his self-control. He, he marries Mary, takes her home, but then doesn't touch her sexually until after Jesus was born so that she and Mary could both completely truthfully say to, to everyone, you know, this is the son of God. This is a, a child by divine conception. So we, we finished Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, as you can imagine, uh, when it was discovered that she was pregnant, that it wasn't just Joseph that was upset. Joseph's family would have been upset. Joseph's relatives would have been upset. Um, this This would have been the world's biggest deal. People... There would have been so many people involved and, and so many just heated arguments, tempers flaring. Joseph decides to take Mary home. People are saying, Joseph, what are you doing? You know, this is absurd. You're besmirching, besmirching the family name. There, there would have been a tremendous amount of pressure, and that isn't talked about. So let's go to Luke chapter 2, because that's that's where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 2. And again, let's let's take a short breather here. Okay, and so verse 1 says, Now it came to pass in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the inhabited world for taxation. 
And so verse four, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth into Judea to the house of David that is called Bethlehem because of he was of the house and family line of David. So this this explains why Joseph went to Bethlehem, because he had come from the family line of David. So he had come from Bethlehem. Now, when we know what we know about Caesar and registration for taxes, um, Caesar understood that people would have to figure out how to close out their businesses temporarily, make, in some cases, long journeys. We'll see that this was probably a minimum of four-day journey, maybe as much as six that Joseph had to make just one way. So, and a lot of people would have traveled farther than that. So when Caesar said there's going to be a registration, it wasn't like there's going to be a registration and taxation on April 15th. There was this huge span of time when you could register. That becomes important when we're seeing why Joseph traveled when he did. He would have traveled to Bethlehem because that was his family heritage. That's where his family line came from. So that's where he would have gone. And, of course, it just so happens that Bethlehem was the prophesied birthplace of Jesus Christ. That's Micah 5, 2. So he goes to Bethlehem. So it tells you why he went to Bethlehem was due to the taxes. And when he went isn't described. And that's, you know, uh, Anyway, it might have been helpful in, in helping us determine at least the season of Christ's birth. But even when he went, wasn't described. But I want to say the verse 4, he went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David that's called Bethlehem. Verse 5, to be registered along with Mary who was engaged to him and was pregnant. And that is the Greek word. For those of you that have been reading King James Version like I did for the first 17 years of my Christian life, uh, the King James Version says that she was great with child. Uh, that is not at all what the Greek text says. It simply says pregnant. There's all kinds of documentation for that. But you can also look it up for yourself. Just grab a Greek text and a lexicon that she was pregnant. What we don't know is how pregnant. But what we, we understand that Joseph loved Mary and Joseph knew that she was carrying the promised Messiah. Now, especially you ladies that have had children, you know that in the last months of your pregnancy, you become quite uncomfortable. Joseph loved Mary. He is not going to take her to Bethlehem at when, at the time that she was great with child. Interestingly enough, there was a, um, what would you call it, an apocryphal piece of writing called the Evangelism. Well, basically, it's the Evangelism of James. James, there's a technical word for it. Um, but it was an apocryphal writing that said that Mary gave birth the night that uh, the night that she arrived in Bethlehem, although um, in that particular apocryphal writing, they don't even make it to Bethlehem. They, they, she gives birth before they even reach Bethlehem. But in any case, it's possible that the King James Version was influenced 
by that tradition that had already started in the church because there was no reason for them to translate the Greek as great with child and the versions before them, like, for example, the Bishop's Bible was the Bible that the King James was supposed to be modeled after. And the Bishop's Bible just said pregnant, as did the Geneva Bible. So the King James was pretty unusual in saying great with child. So verse five, they're registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and she was pregnant. And what we don't know is how far along she was pregnant. Now I want to talk about the journey here for a second. So um, the if we will, uh, hey, Franco, can you throw up that map? Well, basically what you've got, if you if you have a Bible map in front of you, whatever, and you find Nazareth, what you do is you, uh, very few people would travel through Samaria. And a lot of the reason for that was the hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. So what people would do is they would drop down into the Jordan Valley, then go south down the Jordan Valley to Jericho, and then they would take the Jericho Road up to Jerusalem, which, by the way, is would be hard for an even, a, you know, a normal traveler, but would be extremely hard for a very pregnant woman because from Jericho, which is 900 feet below sea level, or actually a, closer to a thousand feet below sea level, to Jerusalem, which is over 2,000 feet above sea level. That that's a that's a over a 3,000 foot vertical climb in 15 miles, and it's a steady uphill. It's not like there's uphill for a while and then little downhills and stuff like that. It's a steady uphill for 15 miles, and then you've got to walk over hill country to get to Bethlehem. Anyway, so they go to be registered with Mary. With uh, he went to be registered with Mary, who was engaged, and she was pregnant. But the Bible doesn't say how far along she was, and the indication would be that she was—I mean, she was weeks, but I'm going to say she was probably months before her due date. That she traveled when it was very comfortable. Another thing is that she would not. Joseph would not have taken her on that journey in December. Uh, that's it's a the wet season starts in late October uh, and goes through April and obviously the wet season is called the wet season because it's wet the roads become very muddy and that uphill climb from Jericho to Jerusalem becomes very treacherous because that territory is extremely rocky and when those rocks get wet they get slick and that becomes very dangerous Joseph there, there's absolutely no reason given the broad amount of time that Caesar gave for people to register for taxes, that Joseph would have walked with Mary in the wintertime. And furthermore, and some people don't know this, but it snows in Jerusalem periodically. In fact, this past January, there was a big snow in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Post said uh, that it turned Jerusalem into a winter wonderland. And those roads become extremely treacherous if there's snow on them, because the rocks become so slick. So here's Joseph, and he's got this big window in which he can take Mary to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem, and he's not going to take her when during the rainy season. It just wouldn't happen. So we took her in the spring, summer, or fall, and that's when they would have traveled. And she was pregnant, but it doesn't say how pregnant. And then verse 6 says, I'm back in Luke chapter 2, verse 6, 
Now it came to pass while they were there. And that's exactly the truth. Not it came to pass when they arrived. It came to pass while they were there. And let's say they were there for a couple months. And that's extremely possible. Oh, by the way, another factor that we've got to keep in mind about this today with all of our medical science, we can tell exact, pretty much exactly within a day or two when a woman's supposed to give birth. And you, you know, women who are pregnant and they say, my due date is, <laughs> well, that's a modern thing in the biblical world. Obviously, the women knew they were getting bigger. The women knew they could feel the baby kicking and moving and that kind of stuff. But as far as coming up with a time when the baby was going to be born, forget it. They couldn't do it. And that's why the biblical illustrations, like, for example, the Lord's going to come quickly, you know, basically like a woman giving birth. It just all of a sudden, you know, she's doing fine. And all of a sudden she's in labor. And so Joseph would not have risked not knowing when Mary was going to give birth and simply taking her along the road when she was quite pregnant. So verse six says now, uh, and I want, I want to just read the simplicity of this. Now it came to pass when, while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Very simple. There's nothing in there about a stable, um, you know, nothing about a silent night. You know, nothing about being alone with Joseph. It's a normal village birth. They get to Bethlehem. It's a small village. Mary's pregnant. She gets settled into a house. While they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. Something else, verse 6, while they were there, the days, plural, were fulfilled for her to give birth. In the Greek, the word days when it, if it's only one day, it'll either use day or hours. If it's a period of time, it will use days. So while they were there, the days, the period of time were fulfilled for her to give birth. And verse seven, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth goes all the way back earlier than Ezekiel. Ezekiel mentions a baby being wrapped in swaddling cloth. I think it's chapter 16, and laid him in a manger, manger because there was no space for them in the guest room. Now, this we have to tease apart, and we need to get it right. First of all, she gives birth in a normal way. It's a normal village birth. When she goes into labor, everybody would know it. Women know when they go into labor. And what would happen in a normal village birth? First thing, one of the very first things that would happen would be all the men are basically leave. Uh, I would say kicked out, but they weren't really kicked out. For millennia, the men would leave. There wouldn't, there weren't any men around when women gave birth. Secondly, the village midwife would show up and she would show up. And, and of course, you've got to remember this is the city of David and it's the mother and father are from the line of David. So this is a really important baby that's going to be birthed here. And a whole lot of women would want to be involved in this particular birth. So what you've got is you've got the house on the inside and they, you've got the, the, you know, the people, the, all the women that are tending to Mary and taking care of her and that kind of thing. And the men are all on the, on the outside and they usually just hung around in the street or maybe went to a neighbor's house or something like that. 
Then, of course, Joseph and Mary knew it was going to be a boy, but the village of Bethlehem didn't. So what's happening is what happens in a traditional birth. The people wait around outside until the baby is born. And when the baby is born, one of the women will come to the door of the house and announce that it's a baby boy. And at that point, a giant party begins. So there's there's food, there's probably a bonfire in the street, there's singing, there's shouting, there's music, there's all kinds of hoopla. It's a giant party. And this was absolutely standard when a baby boy was born. When a baby boy was born, there was always a big party, lots of people. And, and like I say, music, dancing, food, all the stuff that normally shows up at a big party. If a baby girl was born, there was an announcement, but there was no party. And, and why was that? It's because the, the baby boy would add strength and stability and growth to the family. Because when the baby boy grow, grew older and married, he would marry a wife who would then come and join his family. And the children of his wife would be the children that, that of his family, not her family. So a baby boy strengthened your family. First of all, you had the strength of a man, and most of the work back then was manual labor. And you had the fact that he would marry a wife who would then have children, who would expand your family. And not only that, but the wife came with a dowry. So she came with money. So if you if you had a baby girl, she was going to be 12, 13, 14, and then she was going to leave with your money. If you had a baby boy, she was he was going to bring a baby girl, a girl who would then come with money and give birth to children who would then make your clan stronger. So the birth of boys was loudly celebrated and the birth of girls was not. Now, that becomes pretty important down the road here. So what we have is a standard village birth. And then it says they wrapped him in swaddling clothes, uh, which was standard, by the way, and laid him in a manger. Now, what we need to be aware of is that one of the things that, that helped the, the traditional Christmas story get started is that in European society and in American society, a manger is in a stable. But in the biblical society, they didn't have stables. The average, the average villager didn't have enough money to own many animals if they owned even one. For example, it's unlikely that Joseph even owned one animal. And we'll see that in just a second. So he didn't even own, wouldn't even own one animal. But if you did own an animal, like a donkey or a sheep or a milk goat or something like that, it was too dangerous to leave it out at night. It'd be stolen or it'd be attacked by dogs or any number of things could happen to it. So you brought your animals into the house at night. So in village life in Israel at the time of Christ, if you, if the, if you had animals, you would bring them into the house at night. And some people would just put some food or something for the animals on the ground but some people would have a manger. So a manger would be in the house. And the area for the animals was usually a little lower uh, than the animal, than the uh, rest of the uh, house uh, for animal waste uh, purposes. And when I say a little lower, it could be as much as just a couple inches lower. It was just low enough to keep any kind of, of pee and stuff like that from running into the living quarters of the people. Sometimes 
it was quite a bit lower and, and people would dig out a place underneath their house. But that would be fairly rare, uh, depending on the, the terrain you lived in. So you bring the animal into the house. By the way, if you go back to, I believe it's 1 Samuel chapter 20, 28, when King Saul is visiting the prophetess at Endor, it specifically says that she had a calf with her in her house. That was very common in the biblical world. So when it says she gave birth to her firstborn son, by the way, Mary had at least seven children because she had Jesus, and then she had James, Simon, uh, somebody in Judas, James, Simon, and Judas. But anyway, she had four sons, four other sons, and at least two girls, Josephs. James, Simon, Joseph, and Judas. And so she gave, she gave birth to her firstborn son, her first of at least seven children, wrapped him in a swaddling cloth, cloth. That was pretty normal. Laid him in a manger. That wasn't normal. Having a manger in the house was not totally uncommon. But laying your newborn baby in the manger I've never read about that anywhere but here in the Bible. And I read a lot of customs books, and I've studied a lot of archaeology, and I've never heard about putting a newborn baby in the manger. And frankly, the Bible doesn't say why they even did that. I assume it was to keep Joseph, to keep baby Jesus safe with all the feet and bustling and running around and people scurrying around everywhere. And it says, why did they have to put him in a manger, which was in the main part of the house? Because there was no space for them in the guest room. And the word kataluma, which is the Greek word here, means guest room. If you go through the scripture, you'll find out that, for example, when Jesus is looking for a place for the Last Supper, he said, you'll go find a man and ask him about the kataluma, the guest room. The Greek word for an inn is a pandokion. And if you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, by the way, all this is written up in the in the booklet we have, but uh, the, the Greek word is pandokion for an inn, the parable of the Good Samaritan. This man was mugged and stripped, and the Good Samaritan took him to an inn, to a pandokion. This is not an inn. It's a normal house. Joseph and Mary had been there for probably a couple months at least. There was a manger in the house. The house was attached to a guest room. Inns didn't have guest rooms. An inn was an inn. So that's one of the things we've got to get straight. This was a normal a normal birth in a normal house. And the only thing that's really unusual about the birth at all is the fact that the, they laid him in a manger, which is fairly unusual at least from my background in my reading. That's going to come up in a minute. So now we take another breath, and we shift to the shepherds. And so verse 8, and you guys know a lot about the shepherds. There's been a lot of teaching about the shepherds, so I don't want to spend an immense amount of time with them. But I do want to point out some things that I think are important. Verse 8, there were shepherds in the same area living out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks or flock at night. Generally speaking, if it's cold weather or inclement weather, um, now the sheep do fine in like warm rain and stuff. But if it's cold and windy like it would be in the, the depth of winter, they take their sheep into sheep folds at night. The fact that they're out at night indicates that the weather is nicer. 
Verse 9, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were frightened with great fear. Now, first of all, the brightest thing they'd seen in their lives at night was a large bonfire. And that's usually just an oil lamp. And I guarantee you the glory of the Lord was like being in a modern day stadium. I mean, it just lit up with this bright white light from the sky from all over. And yeah, of course, they were, they'd never seen anything like this. Frankly, they'd probably never heard of anything like this. And they were terrified. And furthermore, it says the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. We've got to get the, um, the Christmas card thing out of our, out of our minds where the angel of the Lord is like hovering in the air or something. If you go back through the Bible and you look at when angels appeared to people, for example, to Joshua, angels appeared to Samson's parents, angel, an angel appeared to Gideon. You know, you can run through the scripture that when the angel appeared, sometimes like in the, in, actually in the case of Joshua and Samson's parents and Gideon, the angel had to identify himself as an angel because he looked so much like a person. They thought he was a person. And so the angel of the Lord here, when he showed up, I think kind of what cued him into the fact he was an angel was not because he had wings, but because there was this giant light and he wasn't there. And all of a sudden he was. Now think of yourself talking, picture of the angel now as a human being, that if it hadn't been for the great lights and if he'd come walking, you know, from a distance away, it'd been like Gideon or would have been like Samson's parents. They wouldn't have even known he was an angel. How close is he going to stand? You know, sometimes you get in your mind that it's like the, the shepherds are there and way off in the distance, like it's the other side of a football field, is this little figure that's an angel. You know, the angel stood in front of them. I'd make him, what, seven feet, 10 feet, maybe, maybe 15 feet away, but probably not as much as 15 feet. I mean, he is, he stood in front of them. That's what stood before them means. And that we need to, you know, properly represent that in your mind. And of course, they're frightened. Verse 10 of the angel said, do not be afraid. And that's a good thing. That's what the angel said to Mary. And that's what he says, because they, like it said, they were frightened with great fear, doubling up the, the word Phobos, the root Phobos, you know, to, to intensify the fear. And so the angel says, don't be afraid for listen. I bring you good news that will cause great joy, which will be for all people. For to you, now this becomes important, verse 11, for to you was born this day in the city of David, the Savior. Now they're watching their flocks at night. Remember that the day started at sunset. So when the angel said there was born this day, that means they immediately knew that this baby had been born between sunset and then. So we're, we're talking about a baby that's probably only a few hours old at this point. So he said it was born this day um, in, the, in the city of David, of course, reflecting back. He could have said Bethlehem, but by using city of David, he reflects back to, Beth, to David in Bethlehem. The Savior, who was the Messiah and Lord. So he had to say, he couldn't just say the Messiah. He had Savior, Messiah, Lord, and 
the shepherds got from the great light and the angel that this was the Lord. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And that's one of the ways we know that lying in a manger was unusual. Having a manger was not terribly unusual. But lying your newborn baby in swaddling clothes in a manger was really unusual. And so this was really unusual. And the and the angel just says, well, here's how you're going to know it's him. He's going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes and he's going to be in a manger. And you can just kind of see the shepherds kind of look at each other and go, really? He's going to be in a manger? If you say so, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the, the way they would they would approach this. And then and then verse 13, and suddenly again, just, you know, there's there's the the, the fields and the hillsides around them. And Bethlehem is really busy, really hilly. So there's these hills everywhere you look. In fact, the village of Bethlehem is built on the side of a hill. And, it, and you know, the hills are vacant. Maybe another flock of sheep off in the distance with a couple of shepherds or something. But the hillsides are vacant. And there's this one guy that just appeared and was talking to him. And all of a sudden, verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army praising God and saying, now these are these are angels. They don't have wings. They're not in the air. It says they are with the angel. The angel was standing on the ground in front of the shepherds. And so these these angels, and they're called the heavenly army. Uh, even modern versions persist in calling them the heavenly host, which doesn't make any sense to me. The Greek word means army. The Hebrew word coming out of the Hebrew Old Testament also means army. This is the heavenly army. We know God's angels are in a war with demons and that kind of thing. So it's a multitude of the heavenly army. So here are the shepherds, and they're just normal night, watching the sheep, nice weather, praise the Lord. And all of a sudden, huge light. Here's this angel right in front of them. Now they're scared. He says, don't be afraid. He brings a little message, and then then the hillsides are full of this whole army of angels standing around. And that's what we see in the Old Testament, too, when Elijah, you know, was, you know, master, what are we going to do, said Gehazi. And he said, you know, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Gehazi's looking around like, I don't see anybody with us. And the Lord says, Lord, Elijah says, open his eyes. And then the, the hills are full of chariots of fire. But they're on the ground. They're not in the air flying around. The hills were full of chariots. So that's important to get. So there's this heavenly army praising God and saying, glory in the heaven, glory in the highest heavens to God and on earth peace among people with whom he's well pleased. And that is precisely correct, that there's peace among people to whom he's well pleased. There's some debate about how to translate this verse, but if you think about what Jesus Christ is doing, uh, there's peace among people with whom he is pleased and people that are disobedient then the Lord, they, they don't do so well with the Lord. So then to make a, a story, kind of shorten up the story here about the shepherds, so that the, the angels left, the shepherds say, let's go to Bethlehem. Verse 16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
why would the shepherds know where to go? I mean, granted, Bethlehem's a small village, but it's still a village. You know, and if, if Christ had been born like the song Silent Night, you know, it's very quiet and in a manger and in a stable someplace, how in the world would the shepherds have found him? The reason the shepherds found him is because there was a giant party. And I guarantee you in the small village of Bethlehem that night, there was only one party in the streets. And so the shepherds, all they had to do was follow the noise and it would take them right to the house. And so when they got there, they, um, they went with haste. They found Mary, Joseph and the baby. Wow, there he is lying in the manger, just like the angels said. Verse 17. And after they saw it, they made known about the message that had been spoken to them about this child. And, and so they left. They came, they saw it, they left, and they evangelized. This is one of the greatest testimonies that Jesus Christ was not born in a stable. It wasn't a cold night. He wasn't there alone. If I mean, these angels were godly men who loved God and were expecting their Messiah. Now imagine, you know, how do you feel about Jesus Christ? How would you feel if Christ came to earth and he was staying in some flea bag hotel and being badly treated? Would you invite him to your house? I guess so. You know, if the, if these shepherds had showed up and their village people too, if they'd showed up and found Jesus Christ and Mary and Joseph in anything but acceptable circumstances, they probably would have been confused, scandalized, outraged. I can't believe this. What in the world is going on? What's happening in my town? You know, gather them up and take them home and take care of them. Why didn't they do that? Because Mary and Joseph were well ensconced, well taken care of. The baby Jesus was well taken care of. And so the, the shepherds saw it. They looked around. Wow, the angel's right. This is the Messiah. They were blessed. The circumstances blessed with the, the people you know, may have had something to eat at the party and then went and told everybody in the neighborhood around. And so that's what the shepherds were. Now we go to the time period between the shepherds and the the time arrival of the Magi. So verse 21, when eight days were completed for him to be circumcised, his name was called Jesus. Again, totally normal. You wait till the eighth day. He circumcised the child, and the angel had named him. And then verse 22, when the days of their ceremonial cleansing, according to the law of Moses, was completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that first opens a womb will be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, to understand verse 24 and that sacrifice, you have to go back to Leviticus chapter 12. I'm not going to go there, but it's only an eight, an only an eight verse chapter and you can read it. But basically it says when a woman gives birth, if it's a baby boy, she's got to wait 40 days. And in 40 days, she goes and shows herself to the priest. Now, if there, if Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the priests, are in the temple only seven miles away. So in, a, in about a two and a half hour walk, they could get to the temple and present Jesus Christ in the temple itself, 
which is what they did, which is why Simeon was there in the temple, which is why Anna was there in the temple. So they wait 40 days and then they go to the temple. But then it says they they offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. You go back and you read Leviticus chapter 12, 1 to 8, and you had to offer a lamb. The, the lamb was the, the sin offering, and then you had to offer other offer other animals as well. You might as well just go there, heck. Let's just let's just go there. Leviticus chapter 12. It says, um, verse 6. And when the days of purification are completed for either a son or daughter, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, at which is the temple in Jesus' time, a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering, and also a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he will offer it before Yahweh, and she will be cleansed. Verse 8, and if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering, and the priest will make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Going back to Luke, it says, she was allowed to offer what was allowed in the law, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. She would not have been allowed to offer that if she had any money. So if the Magi had come and given her gold and frankincense and myrrh before this 40 days was up, then she would be breaking the Levitical law, which we know she didn't do. So what this tells us is that even 40 days after Joseph and Mary, after Mary gave birth, Joseph and Mary were so poor they couldn't even afford a lamb of the first year. Which, you know, okay, they cost money, but they weren't that expensive. But that's how poor at this point in life Joseph and Mary were. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons that we're almost certainly assured that Mary did not ride a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem while Joseph walked. Uh, basically, the, the lower class in Israel at that time period walked everywhere. That's just what they did. So anyway, so then um, they, they offer this, and then Simeon speaks and Anna speaks, and now we've got to go back to Matthew, because now we're going to go leaping forward about two years-ish. And we do the, we'll do the Magi, and um, then if you guys, you guys are being very gracious, uh, we'll be, I would say, give it maybe between 10 and 15 more minutes, and we'll be done with the Magi. But there's some important things here. Verse 1 starts out, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So right away, we should know that the Magi did not arrive at Jesus' birth the night he was born because it was after he was born that they arrived in Jerusalem. So they hadn't even gotten to Jerusalem until after he was born, and they had to get to Jerusalem. Then they had to get an audience with Herod. Then Herod had to find out when the where the, the Messiah would be born. I mean, they they obviously would have spent a couple days in Jerusalem trying to figure all this out. So verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. 
Now, at the time of Jesus Christ, there were Magi. Uh, there was a group of Magi in Egypt. There was a group of Magi in the old traditional Babylonia. Those were the two main places. And then there was occasional Magi scattered here and there around the empire. Uh, the Magi were astronomers and astrologers. And for the most part, they were Zoroastrians, which means they believed in a, what we call a dualistic system, that, like they believed in a good god, Ahura, Ahura Mazda, and they believed in an evil god, Ahraman, and they believed that Ahraman was influencing the things of the world, much like we believe Satan is, and that someday there would be a redeemer who would uh, dispose of Ahraman and give the power back to Ahura Mazda, and then the world would become a nicer place. So basically, there were groups of Magi. Not everybody, not all Magi believe that. But there were groups of Magi that believed that. And knowing that these Magi were looking for a Redeemer tells us that that's probably the case. Uh, Franco, can you bring up that other map now? So it says, these guys came from the east and they arrived in Jerusalem. Okay, you see the, the purple dot on the right by Babylon? That's historic Babylon. You know, you see Sumer there, Babylonia, Elam. That is historic Babylonia, the, the kind of the, the root of the Babylonian empire and rootstock. And that is in the general area, we believe, of where the Magi would have come from. And then the other purple dot on the left-hand side is Jerusalem. That's where they're going. That's a minimum of a 600-mile journey. Um, and it would have taken, it took Ezra from less, less far than that four months according to the book of Ezra. So these guys were probably walking for six months or so. Wow. And they, they would have walked. You see the river, the Euphrates River, and how it flows up from south uh, southeast to northwest? That's called the Fertile Crescent, going up and around to where the purple dot is. And so they, they wouldn't have gone across. That's the Arabian Desert. You can't do that. You follow the rivers up and around and then come back and go down. You can't really see it. The Orontes River uh, starts up in Syria and then goes down toward Tyre and Sidon in that area. And then the, the Jordan and that that crescent there is the Fertile Crescent. And the Magi would have followed that route. And we're probably talking a minimum of four months and, and frankly, much more likely something like six now, the other thing we have to realize is what we're dealing with here. They're coming out of the Parthian Empire, and they're crossing into the Roman Empire. And at that time, Parthia and Rome were enemies. So you had bigger problems. You had problems with the fact that any any smaller caravan, any smaller caravan was a target for bandits and stuff. But you know, caravans, people didn't walk and, and go hundreds of miles and, and journey on a camel for six months because they thought it was fun. You know, the idea of fun vacations didn't exist yet. You know, so people, fun was staying home and being safe. So if you're in a camel caravan like that, you're carrying valuables. And because of that, the camel caravans were huge. Um I was prepared when I started to do the research for this work a while back. I was prepared for a huge caravan being, you know, 
I thought maybe 500 to 1,000 camels. I thought that would be a huge caravan. I was blown away to find in Encyclopedia Britannica that even in historic times, they had camel caravans of 20,000 camels. I mean, these things were gigantic, and they had to be for protection. But it also meant that, you know, you have a camel caravan that large, or even if you just go with, say, you know, five to, to 8,000 camels, something like that, there are going to be people in that caravan that are less than honest. So the Magi are, they're joining one of the big camel caravans. That's how they're going to get safely um, from where they're, where they're coming from to Jerusalem, which is all they knew to do. Go to Jerusalem. That's where the king is. He probably knows. Um, they didn't know to go to Bethlehem yet. So they, they're going to be on a camel for, oh, six months or so. They're going to get to Jerusalem and, and within the camel caravan, they're thieves. I mean, you know, they, they weren't really nice people that were those travelers and traders. So the, there would have been a group of magi. The Bible doesn't tell us how many magi. Um, we believe it was the church father Origen uh, who first came up with the idea that there were three. Interestingly enough, the reformers, John Calvin, Swingley, other people at the time of the Reformation, tried to change that tradition. But the tradition was so firmly embedded that even as great a name as John Calvin couldn't change the tradition from being three. I guarantee you there weren't three magi carrying gold. If there were, there'd be three, three dead magi and they wouldn't be carrying anything. So there would there would have been a group of magi. We don't know how large it would be, but my gut feeling it was fairly large. So the magi come to Jerusalem. Verse 2, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, there's a lot in this because, first of all, it's the first question of the New Testament, which in and of itself is cool. Because, you know, the, the first question in the New Testament, where is he who is born king of the Jews? That's a great question to ask people. But why would this be so disturbing to Herod? Because it says when Herod heard this, he was deeply troubled because Herod hadn't been born king of the Jews. Herod was appointed king of the Jews by the Roman Senate in 37, 37 BC. Herod was aware that there were prophecies that the throne of David would be filled again, that there would be Messiah who would be born to be king of the Jews, and he would kill the wicked, Isaiah chapter 11. And so all of a sudden these magi show up and they say, we want to know where the one is who's born king of the Jews. For we saw his star in the east and we've come to pay homage to him. And Herod would have flipped out. <laughs> he would have just, oh, brother, if these guys are right, then the, the Messiah is here and the war is on. You know, and that's that's basically what he's hearing this. He, Whereas he has been born king of the Jews, we saw his star when it rose. And by the way, when it rose, the ancient astronomers didn't have sextants and all those cool things that measure the movement of the stars. What So they, they measured the stars against the eastern horizon when the star rose and they, they calculated, you know, uh, what was by it and where it had risen on the horizon, because as you know, things shift a little bit north and south. 
But anyway, they said, we saw the star when it rose and have come to pay homage to him. At this point, verse 2, if they followed the star, the star rose on the eastern horizon. You saw where they were in Babylonia. They would have gone east to India. <laughs> if they, they followed the star when it rose, they would have gone east, would have ended up in India. So the, the Magi never followed the star. That's important. That's something to keep putting in our minds. The Magi never, ever followed the star. Never. We'll see that. But they saw it when it rose and the, the word star, there's a lot written on that, and I've got commentary on it too, so I'm not going to go into great things about that, but it was, we believe it was a, a the king planet in specific conjunctions and things that they saw that cued them that uh, the Messiah had been born. Verse 3, of course, when Herod heard this, he was deeply troubled in all Jerusalem. And Herod, like I say, he wasn't born king of the Jews. He wasn't even a Jew. He was an Idumean. And he didn't know the Jewish scriptures. So then when he's troubled, verse 4, he gathers together all the high priests and experts from the law, in the law from among the people, and he inquired of them where Christ would be born. If he'd been reading the Bible himself, he could have known that. But he didn't read the Bible himself. So he inquired where Christ would be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, because this is what has been written by the prophet. And this is Micah chapter 5. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. So now they know the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So verse 7, Herod secretly called for the Magi found out from him, from them the time the star appeared. And we know that in finding out the time of the star, that's where Herod got the idea that he he better kill the babies from two years old and younger. They'd been traveling, let's say, for at least six months. We don't know how long it take, took them to, you know, get organized and join the camel caravan. Um, so verse 8 says, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, and search diligently for the child. Because by this time, Jesus was not a baby. He was a child, a toddler, if you will. And as soon as you find him, report back to me that I can come and, so that I can come and pay homage. And verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. Now, where are they going? They're going to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about seven miles due south of Jerusalem. That becomes very important because when you when they see the planet Jupiter, apparently, we think that's what it was. When they see that again, it's going to appear in the southern sky. And so they're just they're already going to be walking south. The star is rising in the sky. So it looks like it's going to the south ahead of them, because when it reaches its zenith, it'll be dead south and right over Bethlehem. So he sends them to Bethlehem and says, go search for the child. They went on their way and look, the star that they had seen when it rose was going ahead of them until it came and stood over where the child was, which, of course, just means that there's Bethlehem in the due south. There's the star in the southern sky. So the star is above where they were going. And that's what it means when it says it stood over where the child was. Obviously, the star can't point out a house in Bethlehem. Seeing the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy because it was that star that got them going in the first place. And so now they're seeing this as a confirmation of their journey. 
verse 11. And when they came into the house, and yep, how would they know where to find Jesus? Well, all they've got to do is show up in Bethlehem and say, hey, we're we're here looking for the, the baby should be, you know, maybe two years old-ish, and he was foretold to be the Messiah. And people would go, oh, yeah, him. Yeah, there was a huge celebration the night he was born. And the angels told us this fabulous tale about him, you know, them seeing a great light and stuff. And he lives over there. And then the Magi would have headed over there and seen the child. Verse 11, when they came into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And falling down to their knees, they paid homage to him. And after opening their treasure chests, period, or plural, they presented to gifts to him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Uh, gold, we understand why it would mention gold. Extremely valuable. Frankincense and myrrh are also extremely valuable. One of the things you learn as you study ancient history is that especially cities, the, the ancient world stank. It just did. Uh, if if you were to get in Orwell's time machine and go back, for example, to the city of Rome, it would ab the, the stench would absolutely blow you away and drive you out of the city. The ancient world just stunk. For example, there was no one like we have public works that are designed to keep cities and city streets and stuff like that clean. They didn't have anything like that. All their transportation was due to animals. They all pooped and peed on the street. Nobody cleaned it up. They they had dogs galore and stray cats galore and rats galore and that kind of thing. They pooped and peed all over the streets and nobody cleaned it up. People in the houses, they went to the bathroom as well. And it was a general thing that people threw what their when they their bathroom waste was just thrown into the street. And people tromp through this. This is why foot washing was so important. Because when you went into somebody's house, ostensibly they had cleaned their feet before they themselves went in. And unless you're just going to track all kinds of, of muck and, and mire and, and, and sewage into the house, then you would have, you know, the lowest member of the household, the lowest slave or the youngest girl in the household, would then be in charge of washing the feet of people that came in from the outside. And by the way, it wasn't just, you know, um, animal dung and human human waste, but also garbage. What do you think people do with their garbage? They threw it in the street. So in, in dead, dead animals, even I've even seen just a kind of a dead animal lying on the side of the road when I was in Jordan. I mean, when an animal died, they just they just kind of left it there and the vultures and the rats would eat it up. So that stunk. Um, they estimate that at least 1,500 homeless people a year died in the streets of Rome. And in many cases, the, the poets have documented that the human bodies just lay there until they were simply devoured by vultures. Because it's like, well, one part of my family, one part of my family, I don't have to take care of it. And again, they had no public works. So the, the point is that the ancient world stunk, and the way they covered it up was by incense. And so frankincense and myrrh were extremely valuable, very light, very portable, and, and would be easy money very quickly. And so that's why it says that they uh, they gave them gold and frankincense and myrrh. There may have been other gifts as well, but those were three gifts that were very, very important 
in that culture and could very easily be turned into, into cash. And then verse 12, having been instructed by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they returned to their country by a different road. Verse 18, 13 rather, now after they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up. So this was probably in the night. Joseph had gone to sleep. The angel appears, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, because Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And what we know in the closing of the story is Herod, who had spies all over his empire, very quickly by the next day realized the Magi were not headed back to see him. And so he would immediately then send to have his soldiers kill the babies in, in the Bethlehem and not being satisfied with that and its entire environs. And so Joseph and Mary had to get up in the night and get out of town. And it was good that it happened at night. Probably if, if anybody saw them, they didn't pay attention. After all, it would just be Joseph, Mary, um, and baby Jesus and some of the stuff that they had with them. Um, and it's conceivable at that point that the Magi would have noticed that they didn't have a donkey and said, hey, well, you know, gifted them a donkey or something like that. That's that's very conceivable uh, so that they had something to, to carry their goods with as they fled to Egypt and they stayed there until Herod died. And then they came back out of out of uh, Egypt and hearing that Archelaus, who was not a good ruler, was reigning in Judea, they went back to Nazareth, to their hometown, where they raised Jesus. So in, as a take-home, the birth of Christ was really a very normal birth. It happened in a normal house uh, with the normal circumstances of a midwife and helpful women and the men not being there. Um, and if we if we understand that, it goes a long way to us setting the record straight that it wasn't a bunch of cold-hearted people in Bethlehem that turned away Jesus Christ, but it was warm-hearted people who took Joseph and Mary into their home and cared for them until quite a, quite a ways apparently after Jesus was born, when Joseph could get on his feet. So thank you so much for your attention. This has been uh, a long night, but I greatly appreciate your being here with me, and I, I trust that uh, you, you learned some things here that will help you understand the Christmas story, and God bless you all.